and there were no recorders then. Um, everything was good. Everything was perfect. The Bible averages about 1,200 pages when printed. Um, interesting enough, right at the same amount as the Lord of the Rings series. Of those 1,200 pages, if you're reading across, you only have to go three pages in to find all of the perfection is lost. Why? Because the very creatures that God created in His image rebelled against Him. By page 6, the same creatures, as recorded, uh, and this is recorded in Genesis 6, they have become so evil that God destroys the entire world with a single flood. However, God was merciful. And so, He saved a remnant of people and a remnant of animals. And then in Genesis 9, He makes this promise that He will never destroy the earth again with a flood. And that comes with an important assumption. That is because God will restrain the evil by His mercies in the world so that the world never becomes so evil again. And so we experience this same mercy today. Although our world contains evil, at times seemingly gross amounts of evil, God is merciful to keep it contained. Technically speaking, there's actually no reason whatsoever the Bible cannot end in Genesis chapter 9, about nine pages in. If it had, then what we would experience is we would experience the mercy of God while on earth to restrain the evil, but we would be subject to the full payment of all of our sins after death. Even still, we would and should give praise to God for the immense amount of mercy in allowing us to live as long as He would have allowed us to live and for allowing us to live in a world that was no more evil than it was. But amazingly, the Bible continues after page 9. As it continues, man gets no less evil and God becomes no less merciful. The question is, why? Why does the Bible continue after page 9? Why does it go on for another 1,191 pages if by page 9 all the conditions are set? Well, as you read further, those 1,191 pages are nothing more and nothing less than God's mercy shown. It is a boundless mercy. It is a patience that is unending. And it is a love that is indescribable. On page 12, that's somewhere around Genesis 12, everything changes as God does the unthinkable. That is, God calls out a man named Abraham and He makes him a promise. He says to him, I'm going to give you a special blessing. I'm going to give you a people and a land that will endure beyond the grave. I'm going to give you a family, Abraham. 
and your family will not face the eternity of punishment they deserve after they die. Instead, they will be treated as if they lived perfectly all their days and enjoy a life in a world with no evil, pain, or suffering. In other words, God will give Abraham a large family and return them to an even better place than God had first created. That happens in Genesis 12. As you move forward from Genesis 12 and across the next 900 pages of the Bible, it tells the story of Abraham's family growing into a nation. They're called the Israelites, oftentimes called the Jews. God promises He will send a king in the lineage of, so in the family of Abraham. In this king, He will rule the world for eternity. Again, as the Bible unfolds, God's mercy does not change, but neither does the evil of man. The last 300 odd pages comprise the Old Testament. I'm sorry, the New Testament, which opens with the story of the promised king being born into the family of Abraham and arriving into the world. And amazingly, Abraham's family, the Jews, they don't embrace the king. They reject the king. Not only do they reject the king, King Jesus, they treat him with content and they finally work to have him brutally and publicly executed. And so as you close in on the final pages of the Bible, the mercy of God doesn't diminish. It only expands. The remainder of the New Testament, those last 300 pages, that's the story of God extending His mercy beyond the Jews to non-Jews. They're called Gentiles. God doesn't change the plot. He doesn't set Abraham aside. But He only clarifies. The family of Abraham does not merely mean those who share Abraham's DNA, but it means those who share Abraham's common faith in God. Their trust that God will provide. Ironically, God uses a man named Paul. Paul had spent most of his time persecuting Jews who dared claim that Jesus was king. He uses him as the very one to go out and reach the Gentiles. So Romans. Romans 11, where we find ourselves. If you were marching across, it would be about page 1100 in the average printing of the Bible. It's where... Paul works to explain how is it that a perfect judge, God, could ever allow sinners to not pay for their sins. That's the argument. That's what Paul's up to. How is it that a perfect judge, God, could ever allow sinners to not pay for their sins? That is, it's trying to explain how can God return folks all the way back to a world of happiness instead of to a world of eternity and punishment, eternal punishment. Still, the question remains, what will God do with those who share the DNA of Abraham, ethnic Jews? Why has God shown mercy to Gentiles? These are the questions considered in Romans chapter 11. And in them... I think we'll walk away with the tools necessary to celebrate the American tradition of thanksgiving in a holy manner. I believe there's a recipe that can transfer it from being a tradition 
into a holy day. We call a holiday. I believe it can be one of the most sacred days of our calendar year. So Romans chapter 11, we're going to begin with verse 11, and we're going to move pretty fast. You should not be concerned about that, um, because you should have a handout. It's got the main points there, and there's also uh, screens up here. Um, so we're going to move a little bit quicker than normal um, in the exposition, and then we're going to make some observations before we close at 4 p.m. All right, so uh, Romans 11:11. So I ask, just making sure you're awake, just staying together. So I ask, this is Paul asking, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Paul rhetorically asked the question, did God allow the Jews to stumble in order that he might ultimately and completely have them fall forever? And he answers it, not at all. So now the boundaries are set. We know that while the Jews have rejected King Jesus temporarily, we also know there will be a future for them in his kingdom. The rest is the what and the why. So if the boundaries are already set, no, they are not falling forever. Rest of verse 11. Rather, through their trespass, Salvation, so that is through the trespass of the Jews in rejecting King Jesus. Through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Paul says the rejection of the Jews, of King Jesus, has enabled an opening for the mercies of God to be extended to the Gentiles. And God did this in order to make the Jews Jealous in order to make them desire the very mercies of God that they have forfeited temporarily. Verse 12. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, that is, the rejection by the Jews of Jesus, if it means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for Gentiles, so across the entire world, to those who are not Jews, their trespasses meant this. How much more will, the, will their full inclusion mean? Paul says, if the rejection by the Jews means incredible reality, that the entire globe is now going to get extended mercies of God, and these are not just Jews who are getting it, if that's what happens when they reject, oh, can you imagine? What is going to happen in the economy of God's kingdom when they accept this king? Verse 13. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. This is Paul, Jew of Jews, writing to these Gentiles. I, I still think that had to be odd for Paul to say. He never talked to Gentiles. And now he's writing a whole thing telling about how God's been so kind to him. That's odd. All right. So inasmuch then as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles... He knows it. He was told that in Acts chapter 9. I magnify my ministry in order to somehow make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. Talk about transparency. Paul says that he is a Jew. He sent to the Gentiles. He hopes that his fellow Jews will be so envious of the ministry to the Gentiles that 
that it'll actually extend a ministry back to the Jews because in their envy they will see the mercies of God and they will turn. Verse 15. For if the rejection, if their rejection, again, the Jews' rejection of King Jesus, means the reconciliation of the world, that is, God reconciling Himself to the rest of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead, if the Jewish rejection of Jesus meant light of the gospel extending out to the, all of the non-Jewish world, we can imagine that the day when they finally accept King Jesus, it'll bring about final resurrection. It might even bring about the culmination of the kingdom, the second coming of Christ. Verse 16, By the way, he's getting ready to get into uh, baking analogies and gardening analogies. I know squat about banking, baking or banking, and squat about gardening. Um, so I'm relying wholly on Wikipedia for the next part. All right. Um, so uh, here we are. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. Paul used an analogy of dough. I just thought it was a container near the eggs, it's yellow, uh, it's a Nestle on it, and you just pick it up and you take it home. It's, there's a lot more to dough, I learned, uh, than that. But anyway, um, Paul used an analogy of, her dough, of dough referring to Abraham as the first fruits. What is he saying? He's promising that the promise to Abraham isn't null and void. A future hope exists for the Jews. Now he's going to move into the gardening part. And if the root, and this goes all the way through verse 21, if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their own belief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. Alright, so he switches metaphors. We go from a lump of dough to an olive tree. The faith of Abraham, that's the root of the tree. The Jews who rejected Jesus, they were branches who God has now cut off. Chopped off those branches. Gentiles, they are the wild shoots. Those were the ones that God was kind enough not to prune. So you get the picture. You got a tree, roots, that's Abraham and the patriarchs. Branches, that's the Jews in the time of Jesus. Wild shoots, that's the Gentiles. He leaves the shoots and he cuts the branches. And you're not supposed to do that. But he did. 
As shoots, Gentiles should not respond with pride. Ha, ha, ha. He cut the branches and left me as a shoot. No, instead they should respond with fear, realizing the very precarious nature of their position, how illegitimate it is that the shoot got left and the branches got chopped. We'll come back to that a little bit more. Verse 22. Um, by the way, I, I really appreciated this. It, it, it gave reason for me to understand why it is we take these trees in the back part of our lot and take them down to nothing. Glenn just has us take those poor things down on a consistent basis. I'm like, those poor trees, they work so hard to grow that. And now I understand, Glenn. Um, it's all there. All right. Um, so verse 22. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen. Kindness to you. Provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, that's the Jews, even if they continue in their unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you are cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and you were grafted in, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back in to their own olive tree? Paul points us to the complementary roles of God's kindness and God's severity. He wants us, Gentiles, to not spurn the kindness of God that has given us faith by abandoning that faith. He also reminds us, don't discount the kindness of God who can surely back, uh, graft back in the, the branches, the Israelites. If He was able to graft us in wild shoots, He can graft them in. Verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. In other words, lest you be so proud that you don't see it. I don't want you to be unaware of this, what does he call it? Mystery. Brothers. Paul's a Jew writing to these Gentiles, calling them brothers. Brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel. That is upon the Jews, a hardening. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it's written, he's going to go back and quote here from Isaiah. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And, and this will be my covenant with them that I will take away their sins. Paul again warns against pride and says that we need to appreciate the mystery of God's working. While God has temporarily rejected the Jews, Paul warns Gentiles, it's not the end of the story. He quotes from the prophet Isaiah to say, it has been planned all along. So Isaiah, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, Isaiah would have been written somewhere around 500 years prior to Paul writing in Romans. Verse 28, as regards the gospel, that is the good news that Jesus will save all, they are enemies for your sake. That is, the Jews, they've been treated like enemies so the gospel can go out. But as regards election, that is the choosing of God, they are beloved because of the sake of their forefathers. 
God made a promise to Abraham. He's not forgetting it. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God's temporary severity towards the Jews has allowed for the gospel to come as kindness to the Gentiles. His initial kindness of calling Abraham will not be forever forgotten or revoked. Verse 30. For just as you are at one time disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient. So just make sure we catch up. For just as you are at one time were disobedient to God, you're a Gentile, that's verse 30. Now you have received mercy because of their disobedience. Because they rejected King Jesus, it's now come to you. Verse 31, so they too, that's the Jews, have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, you Gentiles, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned, held everyone to disobedience that He may have mercy on all. As Gentiles we were once given over to disobedience. We've now been shown mercy. And that came because of the disobedience of the Jews. God uses our disobedience to show us His mercy. This is one of the... We read it. It's, it's in your worship God in Galatians 3. God holds us by the law as disobedient people. Shows us by His law, you are disobedient. And only then are we ready to see and adore the mercies of God. Verse 33. This is Paul getting to the end of this. Oh, or behold, the depths of the riches. Oh, how deep are the riches. Oh, the depths of the wisdom. Oh, the depths of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable. That is so hard to understand. Are His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. And you can just see Paul sit down. Just dumbfounded. So that's what I'm picturing. As he gets to the end of Romans 11, he's walked all the way from Romans 1. And he thinks about what, Paul, what God has done with the Jews and what He's done with the Gentiles. And it's an endless sense of thanksgiving. The mercies of God and the mysteries of God. He says... Just peer into them. Well, I know this is not the typical Thanksgiving passage. I think it offers us the foundations for a distinctively 
Christian Thanksgiving. Let me explain to you what I mean by distinctively Christian Thanksgiving. By definition, I don't think you can have a purely secular notion of Thanksgiving. It's tried all the time. I, it, it, it doesn't actually work. Um, and I'm not going to offer long commentary on it, but just suffice it to say that setting aside a day to offer thanks for one's life, it doesn't actually make sense of the definition of thanks whatsoever if you don't recognize a person to whom you're giving thanks. If you want to talk more on that, I'd be happy to talk to you. I, I'm actually being, I'm not trying to throw stones. I'm saying technically, I don't think you actually can have a secular Thanksgiving. I think you have to toss the idea uh, altogether. But that's actually another talk, so I said I would stay short on that. One could still legitimately celebrate Thanksgiving without doing it in a distinctively Christian way. So I do think there's a way that you could legitimately celebrate Thanksgiving, that is by definition it all be rational and make sense, but just not do it in a distinctively Christian way. For example, it seems reasonable that folks could gather together and want to offer God thanks for their lives, Thanks for their families, thanks for their homes, and the list could go on. It's a wonderful thing. It's an admirable thing. I would imagine that will happen across this nation in the next couple of days. It is good, but it's not distinctively Christian. Since for all intents and purposes, given that definition of celebrating Thanksgiving, that could be done by Christians, by Muslims, by Jews, by Mormons, by Hindus. And I, I think the list could continue there. I'd just try to cover the, the, the majors. That seems reasonable to me. Therefore, it's not distinctively Christian. I think if we practice the type of thanksgiving that Paul practices at the end of Romans 11, we would celebrate not just the provisions of God in the here and now, but a much deeper thanksgiving. Should we follow Paul's example, we would behold the mercies of God. And we would behold the mysteries of God. I think that's what Romans 11 is all about outside of making a very deep, helpful theological argument about Israel. But outside of that, so let's consider the mercies of God in Romans 11. Notice how Paul explains God's mercies by way of the severity of God in verse 22. Verse 22, Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness. Now see, that's an odd statement. It seems, to me at least, that it would make sense if he had said, note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, check, God's kindness to those who have not fallen, check. I mean, that's the way that like, judicial life in my household works. You did well? No severity. Kindness. You didn't do so well? Little severity. Not a lot of kindness. Right? That's just the way that we work. So I think that's what would follow here. But that, that's not what it says. Instead, it defines those to whom God has shown kindness no further than just that. 
We are those to whom God has shown kindness. All the mercies of God. God is not kind because of who we are. We are who we are because God is kind. That is mercy. But it goes further. If you follow the logic of the passage, passage, God's mercy is really defined as any time God withholds His swift, swift, full wrath. Complete mercy. That's mercy's, That's the definition of mercy operating that actually makes the reasoning of the passage work. And that is, mercy is any time God withholds His swift, full wrath. Every moment that God allows a fallen human to take another breath is massive massive mercy. The Bible says the penalty of our sin is what? You know it. What? Death. Death. And therefore, everyone deserves eternal condemnation to start when? Immediately. God has been merciful to allow us to take another breath. It fuels His mercies fuel our next breath. Now add to that the amazing mercy He's shown to us Gentiles. Feel the weight of it in verse 17. If some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Did you hear where we Gentiles fit into that? We're not roots by any means. We're not branches. Nope. We are what? Wild shoots. Shoots are those are those annoying things that grow on a tree and suck all the good life out of it. What do you do with shoots? According to Wikipedia. You prune them. That's what you do. Lest they interfere with the real life of the tree. I got a feeling that at the next work day, they were so crazy as to let me have a chainsaw. And they said, Tim, go after those trees. And I went after the trees and just went after all the branches. And they came back and the only thing left were all the shoots. Somebody would be saying, shoot, right? (laughs) That's not what you're supposed to do. That's a problem. You don't know what you're doing. Do you realize how backwards the Gospel is? God took the branches and chopped them off and He left us the wild shoots. Our pews can never be filled with anything but a bunch of wild shoots. That's who we are. By the mercy of God, and only by the mercy of God, we went from being shoots who deserved to be pruned to those who were grafted into the tree. Behold the riches of God. Friend, if you're here wondering, this God talk and these shoots and branches stuff, and these people were grafted in and not grafted in, you're saying, I I don't know where I fit. With me and God. Please hear clearly. Verse 22. God is severe and God is kind. It can never, ever be more clearly seen than on the bloodied 
cross of Jesus Christ. God allowed on that tree for His severity to rain down on His Son unfathomable dread, unmitigated wrath. All the while, Jesus drank every drop of God's severity and paid the wrath for my sins and your sins. In so doing, the cross of Christ is an emblem, the ultimate emblem of unfathomable kindness. Our only hope is not to earn the mercies of God, but to embrace His offer to be grafted in by grace. How do we respond to that mercy? Verse 18. It lays it out real well. Don't be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember it's not you who supported the root, but the root that supports you. We Gentiles should not be arrogant towards Jews as if the promise God originally made to Abraham is null and void. But furthermore, we just shouldn't be arrogant, period. A distinctively Christian understanding of thanksgiving is laid upon that foundation of humility. Pausing to reflect on the mercies of God must always engender a profound sense of humility. We will always be those to whom God has shown kindness. And if we ever need to be, if we ever need to be anything more than someone to whom God has shown kindness, we will spurn the mercies of God. Ask yourself, in what ways am I trying to add to my identity anything more than a vessel to whom God has shown mercy? I promise you, add a thing to it and you will show contempt to the mercies of God. A distinctively Christian thanksgiving offers humble thanks for the mercies of God and it offers humble thanks for the mysteries of God. At the heart of this passage is a sad reality that those Jews who rejected God, they did so because they thought they understood the ways of God. The religious leaders in the time of Jesus, just like Paul prior to his conversion, they thought they understood how God worked. They were upset because God wasn't coming to use them to take over and let them rule everything. That's how they thought God worked. But God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Look at verse 33. You see Paul say it. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable His ways. Prior to Paul's conversion, he zealously persecuted followers of Christ who were Jews. He wasn't even going to mess with the Gentiles. <laughs> just good gracious, y'all just stay away. He was concerned with the Jews who were following Jesus. Why? Because he felt they defamed the name of God. And now he writes to Gentiles, telling them of the amazing mercies of God. 
No wonder Paul stands in awe at the wisdom and the knowledge of God. No wonder he says they're inscrutable. That is, they're impossible to discern, impossible to understand. No wonder he says, oh, the depths of the knowledge of God. God's knowledge literally is endless. Oh, the depths of God's wisdom. God has the ability to apply perfectly to every decision, every situation, every person, every state of affairs, every circumstance, a perfect decision. In verse 34, Paul writes, For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been, your, or has been His counselor? You can almost hear Paul answer that. Not me. Not me. Prior to God showing up in a magnificent way on the Damascus Road, Paul was zealous in his mission to persecute Christ's followers. He was sure he knew the mind of God. He was literally shocked, deaf, and blind to know that he had completely miscalculated the ways of God. As you read Romans 11, just think of what God is up to across the pages of Scripture slowly cultivating this amazing reality we call the gospel. And you can't leave with anything less than awe at the wisdom of God. We diminish our thanksgiving when we fail to embrace the fullness of the mysteries of God. When we think we know what is best for us, when we question God's timing, when we question His ways, we live in arrogance. We cannot offer the humble thanks that God deserves. That we know the amount we do about God is incredible kindness that He's shown us and given us the Scriptures. That we don't know more than we do will only surprise us if we lack humility. I'm convinced that most, most of our dissatisfaction, let me say this, most of our dissatisfaction, discontentment, centers around failing to trust the mysteries of God's ways. Failing to trust the abundance of His already mercies. William Cowper, a Brit, he was a contemporary of John Newton. He wrote many of uh, helpful hymns and poems with Newton. Cowper also dealt with deep battles of depression. One night, he's at his wit's end and he decided to kill himself. He's going to drown himself in the Times River. Held a cab, told the driver to take him to the river. However, the fog was thick even for a London fog. And the driver had a long time finding where he was going. He couldn't find his way around. Drove and drove and he finally said, I'm sorry, I, I, I can't find you. You're just going to have to get out. Cowper gets out, has no idea where he is, takes two steps forward, and he's standing on his front doorsteps. By the grace of God, God had landed him right back home. It is out of God's kindness that Cowper wrote the words to this incredible poem. God moves in a mysterious way His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps 
in the sea. He rides upon the storm. Deep and unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, He treasures up His bright designs and He works His sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err, and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. Trust him for his grace behind a frowning providence. He hides a smiling face. There is nothing wrong with enjoying Thanksgiving by looking at the provisions of God that you can see, touch, praise God, taste. It's good and right. But I challenge us. Let's go further. Let's have a distinctively Christian Thanksgiving. And let's thank Him for the provisions of those things we cannot see, we cannot touch, we have not yet tasted. The provisions of His mercies and the fullness of His mysteries. Let's pray.